Uh, so, President Higgins, uh, thank you for sitting down with this enemy of the people. Um, <laughs> and I assure you that what we talk about here sure. is off the record and entirely between us. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Um, given that we are in a library, the library, if you ask any New Yorker, perhaps we can begin by talking about words. After your re-election last year, you said in your acceptance speech the following, words matter, words can hurt, words can heal, words can empower, words can divide. I know this was indirectly related to some campaign language by an opponent, but in a more universal sense, what were you trying to say and do you think that you would have felt this need to say such a thing even 10 years ago? I think it's a very good way to begin, but may I just say, and say it in Irish, I am so grateful for that introduction of myself that you have made. I was just speaking, I owe it to the, the Irish language that I speak every day to have those few words at least. And it's such a great privilege to be in a great public library, part of the public world. Because I must discipline myself now to be economical as I can, because we've so much to discuss. And I do congratulate you on your own wonderful book, This Land, which I've been flying through with words. I first heard that reference made actually by Václav Havel. I, when I was Minister for Arts, Culture and the Gaeltartip, more than 25 years ago, Havel came to visit Dublin. And I sensed that he was depressed. And he was, of course, a playwright, and he saw the importance of words, the way that you drop the word means that you're encountering a responsibility. But then much later than I had earlier, long time ago, it was Bertrand Russell, I think, that said, if you have a, a large crowd gathered together, you can get them to believe in anything, particularly if you have music playing. And uh, do you know when that is, the frightening side of that is that that's in uh, Russell's uh, 1936 essay on power. Mm. So to the present time, I think it is incredibly important that people stand against the abuse of language and words. One thing that I have been thinking about, very often people say words loosely, like populism, or they would uh, speak about nationalism. The, the fact of the matter is, some of the most dangerous language in the world at the present time is usually rationalized or, or justified, kind of offered, when people would say something like, I'm only saying what everyone else is thinking. So therefore what you do is, it's a kind of a lie built on a lie. You first of all assume with no evidence that people instinctively hate, that people are instinctively hostile to the other, that they're incapable of entering a conversation with the other. And then you work on that and through a kind of a psychology of fear, you put words around and then you get a resonance. Maybe it's working for you and then you're in business as a kind of a demagogue. And uh, this is happening. Uh, uh, for example, uh, I have to say one of the most, I still stay up to date with different things happening even when I'm traveling abroad. When I think, for example, of uh, the president of Brazil uh, recommending to teenagers uh, that they read uh, 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 the, uh, the work of the principal torturer during the, period, the military period. And uh, mm. I think that makes me very sad because words are so important. And that is why another thing that's in that, I'm, I said I'm going to give short answers, is that <laughs> you're, 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 you're a newspaper man, you know. In the only way that there is a responsibility when you wrote something before, you write your con, you take responsibility for it, you deal with editors and so forth. But we're now in a position where anything can be fired out into the system without taking any responsibility whatever. And it can fall and hurt people who have no redress whatsoever. So you're in an entirely different moral context in relation to the use of words. 
but in, as a person who operates in the public sphere uh, myself, what I think is very important is first of all the responsibility for my own words, but also not to hold back and to break silence in relation to what is b bothering people. Uh, I, I, the last thing I'll say, you asked about, we said when I'm here in New York, I've really been, there's two major themes running through those speeches of mine that you refer to. One is that you can't really, you must recognize that we're dealing with three interacting crises. Certainly one dealing with climate and sustainability, one also dealing with the deep inequality and exclusion, and the other, an institutional crisis where we have to recreate trust, loss of social cohesion. And thus I've been really saying, how do we come to this? I came as a student to the United States when I was 25 years old. We all learned about some kind of inevitable modernization that was going to sweep the world. We were from backward countries learning about a modern country and so forth, whether you were from Ireland or Latin America, South America, whatever. But the fact is, uh, I would have underestimated the sheer grip, if you like, that that kind of single notion of that there's only one version of the economy, that it's insatiable, that it can accelerate growth, and that everyone in the end will benefit. It is the great destructive myth of our times. And therefore, what we have to do is get out of it and get to a new place. And what I'm really saying then, I suppose, and this summarizes all those speeches, is that you must combine the conscience, the conscience, consciousness of these three things, ecological, economic, and social, and put them together to get to a new place. And I'm very convinced that it can happen. Young people all around the world are rising to this. And those of us, those people, have, there are many older people too, and they would say very simply, we would have wanted a better world for our children and our grandchildren. Mm. Well, you touched on many themes there that I was going to get to. Um, I thought that had upset you. I thought I'd throw that in early just to get <laughs> Thank you for coming. No. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, no, no, uh, but actually, uh, my next question was touching on, uh, on several of those themes, but I'd like to begin it uh, by asking you to uh, read a poem. Uh, during your tenure as president, you published one poem, and it's called The Prophets Are Weeping. It's a, a short but powerful poem, and I just happen to have a copy. Would you, would you read it, and then we can discuss? Thanks. Uh, I saw that. <laughs> Did you see the look he gave me there? No, I, I'll also re the, the, remind me about the death of Mary Doyle later, I if you like. That you like. I'm glad I you like that poem. Yeah. It's a pagan poem for rural women. I know that, yeah, I know sure. that. Okay. I wrote this poem, I think, this poem I wrote after the... I had seen images on television of these shady people leaving their home and wandering who knows where uh, in off northern Iraq and it is called the prophets are weeping and where i was really interested in was no more than words being abused about how allegedly sacred texts were being abused right. by different people right. the prophets are weeping to those on the road it is reported that the prophets are weeping at the abuse of their words scattered to sow an evil seed Rumour has it that the prophets are weeping at their texts that distorted, the death and destruction imposed in their name. The sun burns down on the children who are crying and the long journeys repeated, their questions not answered. Mothers and fathers hide their faces, unable to explain why they must endlessly, no end in sight, move for shelter, for food, for safety, for hope. The prophets are weeping for the words that had been stolen from texts that once offered to reveal in ancient times a shared space of love and care, above all, for the stranger. Right. So, uh, that poem was published five years ago, and yet it seems even more of the moment today uh, you refer to the misuse or theft of sacred texts again 
misuse of words. Um, you also refer to um, the stranger, right? The stranger, and we're talking about migrants uh, in one sense, right? Why has the plight of migrants been one of your central causes? It, it seems to me that it touches you both as an Irishman and a citizen of the world. I think it has been one of the big insights that changed my whole writing of an academic kind was something I had, I had taken after I had been in the, in the United States and at Manchester. And I was struck by how all of the social sciences and the literature assumed that the world was sedentary. And yet everything, everything when you looked at it, people were always on the move. Our world, our planet is a migratory planet. Uh, we are ourselves in ways, we are migrants, as I have described it somewhere, as migrants in time. And therefore, if you were to look at the world through the prism of the migrant experience, you find some very extraordinary things in it, the importance of transience. You are from somewhere, and you are headed to a point of destination. But neither the origin nor the destination are able to explain what your experiences are. Because the missing part is transience. What do people do when they're on the move? In the Irish case, they would say, look, the suitcases, the Irish suitcase people. And a fascinating thing occurred to me about that as I read it more and more. About how it is when, in fact, migrants are thrown together uh, and people are, have intimacies close to each other when they're on, on these long journeys. That it is only when they're stabilized with property, for example, that they begin to separate themselves and want to establish distances. And that's very interesting because I, often, I, I gave a lecture some years ago in, uh, in, in Faneuil Hall in Boston when I drew a distinction between two different categories of migrants. The revolution of 1798, which was put down of the United Irishmen, was followed by the Act of Union of 1800, and rumour fled through Ireland that the country was finished. And people from South Ulster, North Munster and others, who could pay their fare, decided to leave for North America. So that a million had come before 18, between 1815 and 1845. Let's say in Boston they had quite established themselves. And then you get the famine, where if a million people die, and a million and 1.5 million eventually are leaving again. And they come and they're like a tsunami of people. But now they are broken people, they have nothing and so forth. And they created a great tension between the previous, with the other previous uh, people who had come already, who would say, how are we going to handle all this? And thus it is when I was preparing for my, work, for my lecture in Faneuil Hall, you'd look at the pilot and you would see ads in it, you know, had you seen so-and-so with red hair and freckles, who has been, because they had to scatter. They were in competition for the jobs at the lower end. And you know, when I was in Mineola just a few days ago, in many cases I mentioned in my speech that they decided then that they would go, they were in, in for, there were firefighters and policemen and they entered all, many of the different services associated with City Hall. Mm -hmm. But you get several different kinds of, of the Irish migratory experience is not one experience. Right. And then there's a most interesting one which would affect us now. In the Christmas 1847, 147,000 Irish arrive in Liverpool in 10 days. Half of them are hoping to go on to, the, to cross the Atlantic. The fare to, through Canada is £3.10, it's £5 to the United States. And what you see there as well, I often think about it, is there are some people in Liverpool, they're all packed on top of each other. As they arrive from Ireland, they have bundles of what are their possessions. But by the time that they arrive and cross the Atlantic in the United States, they no longer have these bundles, right. because many of them have been taken from them, and they have often been exploited by you know, some of their own. Mm. So what am I interested in? in, in, in it? it is, of course, 
first of all, they're positive. Let's, I want to stay positive. There isn't a, a single economy that could function for a week without migrant labour. There isn't a health service in Europe that could function without the contribution of migrants. There isn't a single jot of evidence that migrants have in fact taken the jobs of anyone in the lower socioeconomic groups. Mm -hmm. Yet all of this gets hidden. So the good news goes out. Last year, I just said in radio, depending on how you measure it, of global gross domestic product, 12% was provided by migrant labour. So one of many, many, many cases about it is, is that it is a singular disgraceful abuse to be using migrants, if you like, for whipping and exploiting fear, in my view. But we Irish, we are migrant people. In 1901, I'm going to try and give you short answers, when we had a census, when we had a census after the famine, 1901, think of that. Of all the people born on the island of Ireland, more than half were living outside the island of Ireland. My sisters went at 20 years of age, there were four in my family, between 1955 and 1960, 250,000 Irish people went to England, including my sisters. There is no family that hasn't been touched by migration. And yet, when you look at the categories in the social side, there's one, some great writers got this very well. John Berger, for example, mm -hmm. brilliant in his book, Seventh Man. And he had a book without words, with just images. Turkish migrants building the Berlimon in Brussels, showing each other photographs of life at home in the villages. Mm. And back in the villages in Turkey, they're showing each other photographs of the buildings the migrants are building in Belgium. Mm. And so on. So wherefore, what about it is? I use the phrase, and what I mean by the phrase of the other. It is really fundamental in a moral sense, in political philosophy, how you see the other. Do you see the other as threatening? Do you see the other as something as some, somebody has else put it better, a stranger you haven't yet called a friend or whatever. But the point is, it is just very important that we put the facts about migration. Now that having been said, why, are, why is it a tidal movement now? The climate change is some, because as the grass, the pastoralists lose their, then there are conflicts over water that to move, then you have this 80 to 90, 84%, I think, of global poverty is in conflict zones. Mm. And then the countries that are just nearest to these countries have opened and allowed welcome to these people. Think of Bangladesh, for example, in relation to the Rohingya people. And now there are huge problems. And there are many. But it's a global problem with global responsibility and should never be used for abuse. Uh, you and I had a brief chat last night, and it was basically to help me not make a fool of myself today. And you have failed, President Higgins. No. Um, I, I asked how you respond to those who worry that immigration, say, to Ireland, is diluting traditional Irish culture in Wexford or Sligo or Listunvarna, the music, the dance, the way of life. Could you share your thoughts here? And does it touch on a phrase we heard in that poem you just read, a shared space? Yeah. I think that, first of all, that there isn't any such thing as a crystallized, fixed culture for all time. Uh, if, let's be, get real about it. How could it be, for example, I speak the Irish language almost every day in the course of my work. But we're, most people speak English. So therefore, should I say, for example, that, uh, that because I, for example, uh, uh, speak Irish, does this mean then that the four Nobel Prize winners of writing in English from Ireland are part of Irish culture? So it's not sealed, it's not crystallized at any time. There are many, many influences in culture. And one of the things you mentioned, Canavara, you know, in that part of the world, where I was reared down in County Clare in many cases, a neighbour was coming, she might have got messages from the shop for my aunt or whatever, and people would say, well, any news? 
and it said, no, nothing. Oh, you're no good, you have no story. And in fact, actually, if you're talking in the Irish language areas, which I would know in Fargon scale, the person without a story, we have been actually sitting, the travellers, for example, in the better times, when we're welcomed into kitchens because they had great stories. So we have, in fact, always been, there wasn't ever a fixed entity that we could say is sealed off and, so, and that's somehow in danger. It has always been a mixture. Irish music, for example, remember those migrations you've heard me say, the people who went in the 19th century. They, they, they brought their music to the Appalachians, but they also picked up new tunes, new music, new instruments. And you look at people like Chief O'Neill and all of the others. In some cases, we wouldn't have had recordings if there hadn't, in fact, been a flow going away and coming back uh, and all of that. But I think what you're interested in, it, it, what is, 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 I am a sociologist by training, and what I think is interesting is, and it's very moving, and it's moving in your own book as well, by the way, in relation to intimacies of place and intimacies of space. It's as if you had stabilized yourself somewhere, and you know it well, and so on, and you pour yourself into it. And I think it's very, very important that you retain the capacity to be able to share uh, that with others. But that's why I think it has to be managed in relation to explaining the points of entry and meeting and so forth. And it, you can prepare, you can prepare for that. I, I think that, that I should also say, this. I forgot to, to say it, there are people again manipulating this notion and that are, that, Everything is good. They're, the hordes are coming. The tide is coming. It's all going to be swept away. They're not necessarily people who have been doing anything very social so far. And there's some very, very, quite frankly, um, there's what they will often do. If people are uneasy about some things are unsettled, it's going, things are going to be different, they won't be some bit be, be, be different from ourselves. And instead of helping, and there are many, many wonderful people helping, including those offering sanctuary, frankly. And they will, of course, will work, they, they, the others try to exploit fear again and, and, and create resentment. So it's not a valid argument. And cultures, anyway, what I really think is very interesting is it goes insofar as we've had a huge, I was minister for culture, and I sought to encourage Irish film. I, thought, I was very respectful of other f f f genres of film. But, it was Francois Mitterrand said at one stage, you know, he said, he said, should it be that all the films in the world would be made in one small part of the west coast of the United States by motion pictures of America? And I used to deal with Jack Valenti occasionally, and I said to Jack, you know, I was, when I, when I came to New York during that period, I said, I, I just met these most wonderful new directors from Harlem and they're just going to blow the whole film thing away. But you see, that was the way it is. Again, it, it is, there is all, it's a deadly, I think, piece of nonsense. And the other thing I think maybe we don't use we directly enough is very often is that when you know, take that phrase about it, I'm only saying what they're all feeling. There's the assumption, it's not verified. Then if you fact that it's a lie that you get away with, well, then you just move on to a bigger lie. And then the next thing is you just simply say, they all agree with me. And, you know, you're on to this huge artifice of, of saying that that is actually so distant in any moral content from why people came together, why people decided to share each other's lives, why you have public worlds, why you have elections, why you make choices, the courtesies of the courtesies of that are there, you might disagree with someone. There are kind of inevitable level of courtesies that you have to respect to be able to take account of the views of the other and that. Yeah. Uh, well, <coughs> you're looking well, by the way. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah. Uh, well, let's talk about the term nationalism. Uh, what it used to mean, perhaps, or what it means now, or, or as opposed to nationalism and neo-nationalism, which I think is related to what you just said. Yeah. Why don't you speak a little well, bit Well, I use that. the term neo-nationalism because I wanted to draw a distinction 
between something that is unclose to, in terms of my, the history of my own family as well, there is a nationalism that was what I call emancipatory. Nationalism, for example, where people struggle for freedom against empire, against occupation, against abuses, against cultural suppression and so forth. And there were great nationalisms that have delivered that uh, have for like de de democracy has been the fruit of that in a lot of ways. But if you say then, for example, what is that, that when I say it's emancipatory, it's inviting people to ever greater freedom. And even in the history of the United Nations, when the African countries come, it is your lodging your freedom with other people's freedom. And genuine nationalists, in a way, in the Irish historical sense, some of the very best of them were always international as well. And that's very different from saying what I call neo-nationalism, which is the idea that you pull back into a fiction that you're able to seal yourself off and that you're somehow or another unable to manage better without any contact with the other. You have the same thing in really, we see we're back where we started. We're at the point is we're the same thing in relation to populism. You know, if you use the word pop, there were popular movements in in a, in a, they, for example, the Levellers in the in the United Kingdom in, in Great Britain, the Leveller dude. There was a great popular movement that gave us public housing, the public public education. There were the ones about the civil rights movement here in the United States. There are the ones that gave us that great best achievement of Britain, the British National Health Service, and so forth. So once again. There's a distinction between popular movements that are seeking to include, and a kind of a populist thing, which is, I am taking the prejudice of the day and I'm going to run it to hell. Right. Why do you think that interpretation of populism and neo-nationalism seems to be finding purchase now? It seems that, it, that, 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 that type of sentiment seems to be on the rise now, whereas I don't think you and I would have been speaking about it maybe 20 years ago in, in the same sense of urgency. I think one of the things that we need now very much is we need, you know, if you look at the history of democracy and you look at the different people in the United States, Europe as well, Ireland, in many cases you had a kind of a liter when the, you mentioned my human rights record, I remember, for example, the liter literacy movements in different parts of the world. Literacy was terribly important to enable you to participate, and the assumption was then that you could, in fact, actually be part of the decision making and you're part of the process. What I think has happened, and particularly with the changed nature of capital internationally where you're no longer really dealing with flows of productive capital in different parts of the planet. You're dealing with large volumes of speculative capital. So people don't know what it is, what, what it, why are you, what, they, they feel that they are at it, they don't know why things are happening at a macroeconomic level. There's a suggestion that, for example, look, all this is too complicated for us ordinary folk. You, until the day that you say there is nothing so complicated that it cannot be understood, that it cannot be communicated in terms of its consequences and its alternatives. That's the history of the trade union movement in parts of the world. But we need now a new kind of literacy that will combine economics and ecology and cohesion and so forth. And that's why I actually, I would encourage the trade union movement, instead of waiting until, if you like, the impact of technology falls, to be at the front of the vanguard now in relation to adjusting to what is necessary for climate change and sustainability. And the good news, I can tell you, is that some of the, the unions are already responding. They're saying, we're not just going to wait until it hits us and then make the case for all workers. But in the Irish case, they're saying that we're going to be in from the very beginning. And that's a big debate that's starting now in Europe. The debate about, for example, about, about social Europe. Would you, you ask me, and a lot of it is, I think that uh, none of the, I, I don't want to appear as if I'm just operating out of rational categories. I remember when I came to the Midwest, to Bloomington and so on, the great heart of America, because I was single at the time, people thought I must be starving or something like that. So I kept being, it was a good time by the way, and I, I, I would be invited for lunches and I'd be invited for this, that and the other thing. 
but, but the fact is, there's a generosity there, but there's a huge gap. You know, C. Wright Mills had it right. It, there's a huge gap opening up uh, uh, between it, like the needs of the people. I, I'm very much, I mentioned your book already, and I want to mention another one, and that is Professor Ian Goff's paperback, Heat, Greed, and Human Need. I think if you start with human need, and then you're able to put together all those things that I mentioned, and I think there's, there's something wonderful about that. I, I, I just, I, I, I'm, I'm not just falsely optimistic. I actually think that the model is being shown for what it is. And I think the model will be changed. We will get to a new place. And this happened before. You know, it happened in, uh, back in New Deal times and all the rest of it. It's happening in Europe as well, but it's happening in Europe where people, for example, realized that this is a public library. In Europe, we had libraries that were being, had funding being cut from them uh, because of the hostility to the state. Mm -hmm. But now here you've got it all back again. Who would, in fact, buy, save, save us from the consequences of the banks? The state. Who could deal with environmental challenges? The state. Who would give us gender equality if we were ever to get it? Would be the state and so on. So the debate is on again and that you're going to see new forms of partnership uh, between the state, civil society, and, uh, and, and the private sector. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I have to be very, very careful about this, but to say, philanthropy can't be an alternative for all that. That's right. Um, you once said, um, maybe this week actually, or last week, uh, the defense of previous generations that we did not know is a defense that will not be available to any of us in relation to climate change. I want to say one name to you. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> Greta, Greta Thunberg. Absolutely, yes. And I, you know, I... I, I, I I think it's extraordinary the effect that she has as a person and in her actions and in her words uh, and how, how it has affected, the, how it has affected the, the, the debate. You see, we've come very far. Let's speak the good news is that by 2015, two great decisions were taken. Uh, one in Paris in relation to climate change, books, these were United Nations events, and one in relation to sustainability in New York, United Nations events. And as people are working through, you need some kind of catalytic agent out the front, someone who will draw it all together, and will say something like, for example, the words having been agreed, people having signed up, uh, why isn't it happening? And in a way, it, you can always say, well, this is very complex and everything like that. When I was speaking in, 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 uh, yesterday, I think I mentioned the point that very often people say, well, this is so complex, we need clarity. But the clarity becomes a, a screen or a mask behind which you have a, to covering inaction. So therefore, when you have to begin with simplicities, that we cannot go on like we are, that you, you, that you are going to, cannot, you have to deal with insect. The move, we have made as a planet a movement from sufficiency. We never really achieve sufficiency, because we have too much global poverty, needless deaths, dying, deprivations, exclusions. But even apart from that, I think, the thinking moved to a kind of an insatiability. So therefore, the position we're in now is we're not all equal in this position. We simply cannot. We have to restructure forms of consumption, and that affects everyone. But also, as well as that, what about those who are struggling to live? And I think, in a way, when I think back on it now and look at it in many ways, is it a great society if you have to have three jobs to educate your children and that you have to have four jobs to pay for a medical system as well. I am running, maybe it's through my writing and otherwise. When I hear now people say to me, but we're now, what is that the word that they say? We're in a globalized world. 
and we're internationally interdependent. I'm finding it necessary to say what we have is that we have a we are connected in our vulnerabilities. Some people are vulnerabilities that are immediate, like the small islands whose, where the sea level is rising, and they can't wait for us to conclude our considerations. Equally in relation to others, where there is massive consumption, that really is, in fact, people, as I said, are being consumed in their consumption and being quite vulgar about it at times. And then you have equally, so when someone comes and stands in front of the rational categories and say something, you know, like Grisha said, I think that that is very, very powerful. So then I was speaking later on at the United Nations, as you know, uh, and that I think it's very important that we go, we need to turn words into, I was in 1992 at Rio for the United Nations Conference on, on Economics and Development, and there you had the Business Council for Sustainable Development on the platform. But you had the people who were affected by the rising sea levels on the Greenpeace boat. Now, what you really need, the word authentic. But every word can be stolen from you by the advertising industry. Somebody says, I'm really being authentic. Well, authentic is sometimes used by people who really are talking about narcissism. Whereas, in fact, what she is talking about is about people taking the words and actually seeing them delivered in your actions and in consequences. I thought it was a powerful, she's made a powerful contribution. And also, what's very, very important, what she would want as well now, not to leave it to her. Everybody must take action now and become involved in their different ways and in, in their different circles. There it is now. Uh, we're going to take some questions from the audience, uh, and while I uh, take a look at them, uh, I, I love this phrase of yours, and I wondered if you'd expand, expand upon it. Um, you've spoken often of the music of the heart. Oh, yeah. The music of the heart. What La do, musica what do you mean del corazón. A big pardon? La musica del corazón. Yeah. I, I was going to say that, but... Uh, <laughs> the music of the heart, yes. Yes. Yeah, so how does it apply to your understanding of our need to belong? Why don't you tell us what you mean by the music of the heart? Yes, I think that one of the things that, you know, when I wrote about Africa and saying that, saying that what you need in Africa is an enlightenment, but I wasn't speaking about the European enlightenment, the 18th century. I, there have been several enlightenments all around the world. That's the one that gets mentioned most. But it is very much the idea that it's something to matter, something to, to is important because it can be measured. It can be understood through rational categories. And I argue very strongly uh, against René Descartes' uh, notion of that. I said that there is always something else beyond what can be actually measured, began what can put into categories. There is something else. Some people call it intuition, or somebody would say it's from the great residual of humanity, which kind of forces a person to act beyond the calculable. That's the word I'm thinking about, the calculable. So it was interesting in it that it, this is something, in fact, I mentioned when, when Pope Francis came to see me in Oris in, uh, in, in Utrón, and I had a piece there on this question of my, my preparing my little assault on René, Cart, René Descartes, which I was calling the Cartesian fallacy. And I, I said to him, you must also not only listen to the rational categories, you must respond to the music of the heart, which is what we must do now. And when he wrote back to me afterwards, after his visit to Ireland, he said, I am glad the Irish people are still listening to the music of the heart. And <laughs> that's, 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 that's how that phrase. But, you know, it's very clear what I mean. But it, it's true of everywhere, you know. And if you take literature, even you, you know this, as many said, how often do you see it in dialogue, where it said, my heart went out to them, or something like that. But this is, these are not binary choices. It is, in fact, actually good policy is motivated by what is made empirical and can be understood and made accountable. 
but also which reflects the best instincts of the heart. And I like to call it because the music of the heart, because cultural communities and artistic communities I would have dealt with, they regularly transcend the false deadliness of what we're condemned to. They're able to fly, they enable us uh, to fly through imagination into a different place. And but also as well as that, to engage and see what's holding us down. Bertolt Brecht, very important. It's beautiful. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to... Uh, did you write all these questions I, yourself? I did. <laughs> Who's that handsome man to your right? Uh, um, Mr. President, do you think that with Brexit, there will be an opportunity for Ireland to reunite with Northern Ireland? I think it has brought the discussion forward. Uh, I think at this stage, what I think is most important is that whatever measures are taken, that they protect jobs, that they protect the working people who are going to be deeply affected by it. In Ireland, I think that if there is, if, it is, if the exit is managed in the way that it's not now threatening, it could mean a loss of up to 80,000 jobs. It could mean a loss in Northern Ireland of jobs. It could mean a loss in the United Kingdom of jobs. Because this is a two-way relationship, because about a billion going in each direction. So they are affected by us. To this question I, I answered, I think, already today, somebody asked me. It's very important that we offer a future it is one that I have said where we have been able to put our competing narratives of the past side by side with each other. And as I often quote Hannah Arendt, and I said that the importance of undoing an aspect of the past is so that it doesn't disable you in the present and deprive you of any of the futures you imagine. So there has to be consensus and there has to be kindness and there has to be an appreciation that we're going to do something new. But yes, I do think the debate has been brought forward, yes. Hmm. You spoke about the, um, you spoke about education um, that goes beyond just uh, preparing students to be useful, quote unquote, and market driven. What would be the best ways to deliver your vision of education? Universal education. Make education free to everybody right through the life cycle, do different structures entirely. And you might say, who will pay for it? Well, it's very interesting in that one. <coughs> when you deal with uh, somebody, I was uh, thinking about it the other day, somebody has written recently somewhere, skills are the new currency. Let's take like, like the, the issue of the, the impact of technology. And you say to somebody, these people who are in legacy industries are closing down. And they can't all move to somewhere else and so forth. And they can't all, for example, be retrained. But if they did acquire, for example, skills and new changes in life and so forth, do they belong to themselves or to the industry? Now, I think that the best way one of our own universities, unfortunately, have happened uh, yes, you're quoting from my speech in Fordham where I said that what has emerged is a, a new precarious of young scholars and because, if you like, the corporate world has leaned onto the university system, so now that a person will apply tenure faster if they have in fact brought a big bundle of money with them into the university. But remember, when I, I describe myself as a university teacher, uh, I'm proud to have been uh, a, a person who put an emphasis on teaching. I love meeting my former students, and I still think it's important to be able to teach in a university, as a much rather than being a kind of a bundler and gatherer of uh, investment money. So I think you really need to just, you, you really need, the other thing is what, 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 what is involved in between the relation between students and with each other, with staff, with everything. If it is to be a community of learning, you ideally would have people of all ages as well. And you, it isn't a case of having to use all your credits up by the time you're 21 or 25. And then the other side about it as well, the notion is that, you know, this is, in the medieval times, if you were to say to people that the world was flat, 
why, why is it so much said that you, you can't have education without huge saddles of debt being on top of everyone's back for most of their life? What's so wonderful about that? I mean, the point is, what has it produced? The answer you said it has enabled us to put people on the moon or something like that. The fact of the matter is, the more you, in fact, make the public world accessible to people, library, books, literacy, you know, education at different levels, you'll get real genius and innovation and creativity and so on. And people will be far less stressed. But that, you see, got blackened in a way. I, uh, I uh, very much think that looking back on it all, many people on the left, for example, were insufficiently critical of the statism that was, that was in some of the states. But equally, far, far more serious was those people who suggested that because those abuses had taken place in relation to personal freedoms in some state systems, that somehow or another the collective world, the socialist world, was something that you should dismiss. This is nonsense. People know together. There's an instinct in... I just suggest as a hypothesis that there is a stronger possibility in people to cooperate as to be insatiably greedy. Hmm. <laughs> what aspect of public service do you find the most rewarding? Talk it yourself. <laughs> <laughs> No, I find, I find, I find, I actually find the engagement with the public is the part I enjoy mm -hmm. most. And it's very, very good. It's a great gift in Ireland to be able to people walk up to you and talk to you and, 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 and so on. I, I, uh, I, I, I don't, uh, the other part I think that maybe I should say now publicly as well, uh, do you know, I'll, 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 you'd know about this now because you'd have interviewed to these people. Do you think it's necessary in public life uh, to be going around clap happy and by saying to somebody, you know, that I should be fished and... Uh, do you think that's important? <laughs> do you know, kind of, do you think yes, you should be throwing on a shape if you're in public life? Yeah. I think it's very important to be able to acknowledge that you're able to acknowledge the vulnerability of people. Mm -hmm. as opposed to be, in fact, cheerleader number one out in front, which is a bit vulgar, really. Yeah. I had a question for you. This isn't from the audience, it's from me. It's how do you, how do you find the, the time to think? <laughs> no, I mean, I mean this, I'm not being, I'm not being oh, no. I mean, because it seems to me that your, your, your day Would you think I am thinking now? I then? do, I do. I do. <laughs> Faster than I am. No, but no. I, I, I think that you um, you are, as the Encyclopedia Britannica said, an unashamed intellectual. But when do you have the time? And and uh, for example, do you, as a man of uh, literature as well, do you see the world through two prisms, say the the political or the public the public policy, yes. and the literary? the, the, the yeah. you know, through yeah. an artistic lens. I'd love to when, have a lot. Time, I, when, I, do you, I, when do you find the time to even be able oh to do yeah, that? I, I wish I had a load more time, really. I'm not talking about years now only as well, you know. Some people will say that explains why I'm, instead of giving 45 minute lectures, now I'm giving hour long ones, you know. Maybe I'm getting desperate. But I, I, no, I, I think what it is, uh, I, 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 I'm, I very much uh, just say this to you about it. Since I was, a, when, when I was five, my brother and I were brought to be reared by my aunt and uncle. My father was ill. And my aunt was immediately, I was seven before I went to primary school, but I was able to read and do all of these kinds of things. And all of my life had to be to do with uh, books, and which I love book. Books have been my life. But in my way through, you gave a description of it there introducing me, which is very, very important, is having qualified in different subjects and disciplines and having been a teacher, it became terribly important that I not just hold in myself the notion that it is appalling that 
anyone would have had to do what I did because there wasn't free secondary education in Ireland at the time. Uh, that my um, uh, mother would have been still hoping that she'd have a good, decent house, that, that my sisters would have to emigrate to England, and so on. And then when I was practicing in the university system, uh, when I was in all of the different societies and writing and things like that, and I would have written really from what was attracting me. I was interested, in, for example, in the short story, you know, the, the, the long Russian short story was the story that was influencing people like Frank O'Connor and others. Then there was the tricky story of Maupassant. But I was very interested in Steinbeck and I was interested in the slice of time. And you know, you have in your book Celia Vargas and that little thing in, in many cases of this woman who was working, working, working. But people shouldn't have to work, work, work. They are citizens. They are not units of labour only. So therefore, that's what people have to do, is that they have actually to organise for participating citizenship. And they will give us a globalisation then that we'll call ethical, because you will be able to take into yourself because you know this is what we do in our own places, how we look after people. And it's not a choice of having to look after people abroad at the cost of people at home, whatever. It's in fact, what is your, how do you see it? I see it as a great waste of, of, of life. I see it as a great failure of politics if you're excluding so many. Um, as a sociologist as well, is, is that, yeah, I'll tell you another one, because I think you wanted something sensational, you know, as well. I think that I think it's a great tragedy that there are so many people in American prisons, and very particularly yes. the people who are doing them. So there you are. Okay. <laughs> Have you a few more? Uh, just just uh, two more. Oh, no, keep going. Oh, right. um, how can the people of Ireland be more welcoming to the current immigrants to Ireland, especially the current asylum population? I think we're beginning to make progress in turning around applications uh, faster. I think it's where we need to look at the institutional structure and see how you can, uh, how you can, uh, and there are some improvements. Judge Brian McMahon made some very good recommendations, some of which have, many of which have been imp imp implemented in some places. One of the things about it, for example, about, for example, when you're receiving migrants, is if you say that you're going to look after the numbers, and um, somebody says, I haven't been able to cook for my children or something like that, it's about discretion to have discretion over how you prepare meals, discretion over food, discretion over your relationships with who's with you. So you have to be very, very, very careful. You need to soften the whole institutional means. You need to make it faster. You need to make it more caring. And we need to take, we, we are going to be taking more people. And I think the best way to do that as well is by having open discussions in preparation and in, uh, and, and in welcoming. We have in the primary schools in Ireland, it's primary school, that is the first level of schooling near where the president's house is in many cases. There are 50 or 60 nationalities, children, boys and girls sitting there, perfectly happy and it's working well. It will get more challenging or more difficult, maybe we'll have to put more resources when you come on to the teenage years and whatever. But Ireland is at the moment, I think it is the figure it is, uh, I think it is 17% now of people who do, weren't born in Ireland are living in Ireland. And we've gained enormously. We've gained in everything that we're in the we're doing. People regularly like to say, and uh, you know, the people participating in the traditional sports, um, the best hurler in County Wexford, in case you're interested, his mother is from Fiji. But has it been seamless? Has it been, uh, or has it been? Yeah, a bumpy we've been ride? very, we've been very fortunate, and uh, it, it has gone very well. We have incidents now in some places uh, where you have some people who are kind of very deliberately seeking to attach themselves to communities who are anxious about proposals to try and admit that is happening. But people actually very clever, they are not because again, 
they've been, as it were, outed on the social media. People know who they are and what they are at, and I think that the Irish people uh, will draw on the best instincts of their Irishness and deal with it. Okay. Well, here's the last question, and, and you could see it. It says, would you give us a poem? Oh, yeah, that's fine, all right. <laughs> now, would you like one of my... <coughs> We'd get thrown out. Would you like one of my long ones, or my? Have you, uh, I know you've spent all night reading these. So, is there any particular one you would like? I don't know if, if, if the death of Mary Doyle is in right. that volume, but uh, I read that one. That's a good one, by the way. It is a good one. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to write again now, you know, but it'll give me away, and I, I, I'm very committed to the history of the trade union movement and all the people who used to gather at the weekends and preparing for the march and the banners with all their embroidery, you know. So I have an unfinished one, but I'll, I'll let you know when it's finished, but it is about it is the, the night is long and I awake. I'm struggling to recall the beat of feet behind banners made holy on Saturdays. Banners, silk, in go and on it goes. And it's about the whole great way. That was my life. About, for example, when people who didn't have time to read all the theoretical the basis of this, but by marching along together, be it for peace, gender equality, be it against war, be it for equality, for all of these kind of things, we learned walk, walking together. With the poem you want now, <laughs> The Death of Mary John. I'll have to. It's a while since I read it now, so. Uh, uh, it is in this book. Yes, it is. Yeah. The death of Mary Doyle. She knew that there was thunder in the air from the sulphur she had come to know. All day she had waited for a visitor to read the letter from her daughter, the nun who had written earlier that week from Africa. Moving her hand along the handle of her stick, she sighs at all the stories she has read of the older people who had gone before her found these stony acres. She talked too much, she thought, in recent times, and then it all came clear in silence she would go to the barn. She loved it there, where all seemed warm and intimate too. Taking her stick, she stumbles out the door and pushes through the yard undisturbed by green pools of urine and dung damp under her feet. And it is the dryness of the barn, its thousand smells, a shrine that welcomes her. In recent years, she'd come to know a strange fire that sparks from the embers, not lit from desire, but intimacy stored from days and nights spent here in better times, and all the laughter that filled this place. Leaning towards the bin, the smell of meal molded, stirs the memory and pictures come of hens and cheerful chatter. The stickiness of newborn calves, gelatine healed and steady, needing the pull of both hands to stand wobbling, waiting for the rat click of a cow's tongue that was with laughter invoked to describe the quip of her first son's hair. The colours of all the feathers in a hundred nests warm her heart that fills as she tries to feel the rounded shapes finger poked for eggs in the bright years of her marriage. Slowly rising, the warmth moves from her fingers through her body shapeless from the birth of seven children. Exploding through her head, the thousand pieces gathered in sense memory overwhelmed. She falls towards the crib where the wood polished by the neck of an itchy cow is marble smooth and warm, but offers no grip. Lying tumbled in the rank hay, she laughs, and still the colours come of gold and amber, of green gone brown. She had it all. The limber shoot was browned by a season that ran its course. That rich gold head of grain would break the stalk in times of storm or broken weather. 
But more often the stooking and the binding intervened between the time of fields and the predictable breaking of the tracking. She was an old sheaf cut loose from binding, all seed taken only the dried stalks ready for the bedding of all the life that heated with their breath this barn. They found her pitched forward among the hay and screamed when they saw the youth of the smile that covered all her face. Her stick abandoned, she held in each hand straw and feathers. They would have to clean her up for the laying out. They did not speak to each other or the neighbours of where they found her. And at the laying out, a holy woman claimed she heard a crowd of angels come to bring her up inevitably to heaven. It was not angels that sang her home, but cows and calves and ducks and hens, and they gave her colours for her head, and voices too, and smiles and smells, and the touch of love. Not long after, they decided that it was better to knock the barn. It was upsetting to the holy woman, who said it had memories that disturbed her of that day when Mary Doyle went out of the barn to die. Thank you. Thank you very much, President Higgins. It's been an honor. I'd ask the audience if you would please remain seated while the president exits. And thank you once again. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. May I just say to the audience, Mila Buikas, thank you very much. It's Berbanov, every blessing.